I'm not a math guy. Don't like math. I'm a word guy. That's why I get up and I preach. I talk. Some of you are thinking, yes, too much. I talk. I'm a word guy. I'm a verbal guy. I write sermons. I write a blog. I write papers. I love words. I don't like math. Now, don't get me wrong. Some math is easy, like elementary school math. Elementary school math I can do. Two plus two equals? Right. Wait, what? Two plus two equals four, right? Uh, Math was easy when I was in elementary school. I get to junior high, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm starting to do things like algebra, and I get into freshman year of high school, I'm doing algebra. Algebra was easy. Algebra made sense. Algebra is logical. 2 plus x equals 4. Solve for x. x equals 2. Right. You see? Algebra is easy. We can do algebra. Then, then, in my sophomore year of high school, I had to take geometry. Oh, how I hated geometry. Love my geometry teacher. Hated geometry. Because they introduced this thing called pi and pi is 3.14159 and so on and so on on into eternity all these numbers and it's all this it's not the good pie which is french silk pie from baker square not that nasty mincemeat pie but good french silk pie that is good pie math pie is like mincemeat pie it's no good i'm sorry if i offended anyone who likes mincemeat pie like i said math Growing up was easy till I get to geometry. And, 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 and math was concrete. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. If I have 10 pieces of bacon and you take 4 pieces of bacon, how, what do you have? A black eye and a bruised hand because nobody takes my bacon. Six pieces of bacon. No, I got 10 back. I'm taking that 4 pieces of Don't take my bacon. And then I get into junior year of high school. I made, somehow made it through geometry. I somehow made it through the sines and the cosines and the tangents and the pi. And I get to junior year of high school. And now I've got to take, they take something I love, which is algebra, and they put a word in front of it. It's called advanced algebra. And they took away all the stuff I loved, and they added all the stuff I hated. And all the sines and the cosines and the angles and the tangents and the pi. And then I've got to take my senior year of high school, I have to take pre-calculus and i think great this will be wonderful i can use a calculator now right no i don't get to use a calculator it's not what it means oh i did get to use a calculator it's called the graphing calculator it's got a screen on it this big it's like a tiny little computer it's like what is this thing what am i doing with this thing i have no idea what all of this stuff means not very good at math i said i'm a verbal guy i like words math not so much i want to talk to you today about a spiritual equation. I like equations. Some. Algebraic equations, not quadratic. This is a spiritual equation, though. And this may be, honestly, the most important message you hear this year. Because this spiritual equation is what our spiritual life is all about. It's what a relationship with God is all about. This spiritual equation. God is the author of math including geometry, though I don't like it. And and I believe that God has a a spiritual equation for us and a spiritual equation in this world and in our lives that, that we desperately need to understand. This spiritual equation is more than pi. It's more than sines and cosines and two times x equals four. No, this spiritual equation can change and transform our lives. 
like I said, I don't like math, but I like God's math. I really like this equation a whole lot. And, and so this morning we're going to talk for about the next 25 minutes or so about this spiritual equation that God has written across the universe and into our lives. Now, we're going to uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 9. We've been studying the book of Hebrews here on Sunday mornings all summer long. We've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and uh, we continue today with Hebrews chapter 9. We've got uh, Hebrews 9 today, and then chapter uh, 10, 11, 12, and then I'm going to be gone a week, and then we're going to finish up at the second week of September on, uh, on Hebrews 13 uh, after Labor Day. And then we've got some different things we're going to do in the fall. I've got a, a series that I'm calling Selfie. We're going to do a sermon series called Selfie in September. And then in October, we're going to do a series called Signs. Signs, signs, everywhere is sign. Lock on scenery. Thank you. Um, and then in November, we're going to talk a little bit about stewardship. In December, we're going to talk about, I'm not even going to say it. We're, we're not even going to go there. It's still August, right? Right. So that's kind of where we're going for the next several months. Um, but if you got your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We encourage you to always bring your Bible. If you don't have one, let me know and we'll get you one. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one out of the chair rack in front of you. Uh, if uh, We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, you can find it on page 850 of the chair Bible in front of you. That's where this passage is found. It's on page 850. We're looking at Hebrews 9 today as we talk about how Jesus is our sacrifice. Now, when it comes to things like punishment, I have a son. You all know that I have a son. And when he disobeys me, there has to be some kind of consequences for his actions. There has to be a consequence for his disobedience, a, a punishment, if you will, for his disobedience. Uh, and, and it's one of the worst things about being a parent. Am I right? Yeah, kids don't believe you, but ugh, it's terrible. It's awful. Um, I... Uh, I know that if, if, if in, in me as a father, I have to punish my son for his disobedience, how much more does God have to punish us and punish humanity for our sinfulness, for our sinful disobedience against him on a cosmic level? And we as human, human beings are sinful. We are sinful creatures. We are sinful people. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. That's everybody. Everybody, everywhere, all the time. There's only one who has never sinned, and that was Jesus and the rest of us were all sinners, all in the same boat. Grab an oar because we're, we're sailing on towards uh, to sin land. But uh, we were all sinners. And God has to do something about our sin. God is holy. He is completely holy, completely other, completely special and unique beyond anything we could ever imagine. In the first service, I, I gave the illustration of God, uh, of uh, like Grandma's Fine China. How many of you have, a, have Grandma's Fine China at home? Or how many of you have Fine China? Okay. All right. Um, we, have a, uh, we have a set of gra Shannon's Grandmother's Fine China. It is in its own special place called a China cabinet yes it's it, it, you have one too apparently um so we uh, the the special fine china goes in the china cabinet and you know what we never 
touch it. I don't even think I'm allowed to look at it, honestly. Um, I, I can't even go anywhere near it. It's like, did you touch it? I saw a fingerprint on the china cabinet. Did you touch the, did you touch the china Who touched the china cabinet? We don't touch the china cabinet. We don't get into the china cabinet. We don't eat off the, t- the plate. You know what we eat off of? We eat off, off of chipped uh, Ikea plates. All right, and you know, oh, you know, you have chipped Ikea plates too. They may not be from Ikea, but you know what I'm talking about. They have all the little chips in them and the little steak knife grooves uh, in them, you know, where it's, it's all messed up and just nasty, and it's like dropped it on the floor. Oh, well, it's just a cheap Ikea plate. Um, but when we talk about Grandma's Fine China, we don't eat off that every day, if we eat off of it at all. No, it sits in its own cabinet because it's special. It's set apart. You might eat off of it once a year for a special occasion, but that would be it. You would never treat it as common or ordinary. God is not common. God is not ordinary. God is special and unique. God is holy. To be holy means to be set apart. God is set apart as holy, meaning sin cannot be in his presence. As sinners, we cannot come into his presence. And we're going to talk about that as we talk about Hebrews chapter 9. And we talk about this cosmic spiritual equation that God has written for us to follow. So look at Hebrews 9, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 10. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up was, uh, sorry, did this first service too? A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, lamp the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. And the reason that he couldn't discuss them in detail, because he could go on and on and on and on and on all about them. He's like, we're not going to talk about those things right now. We've got more important things to talk about, which is kind of weird for a Jewish mind to think about because that was everything. I mean, the tabernacle was so important to their worship and the temple was so important to their worship. It was all centered around the temple. It's all centered around the tabernacle. He's like, we're not going to talk about that now. We've got more important things. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. So you have this tabernacle, which was a a place of worship, uh, which contained a sanctuary, and this is what they set up uh, for the people to worship in when they were wandering in the wilderness uh, after uh, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves for e- in Egypt for 400 years, the Jewish people, and then they were uh, led out of Egypt after 10 plagues by Moses, and they went into the wilderness. They get to the promised land. They send in spies. Spies like, can't do it. The people who listened to the 10 spies were bad, not the two that were good. And um, so, remember the song? Anyway, uh, so you've got um, the 10 spies. They listen to the 10 spies, and they say, we can't do it. They don't go into the promised land. In fact, they're not allowed to enter the promised land for 
40 years until that entire generation dies off. So they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They build the tabernacle. I want to show you what this looks like. This is kind of the tabernacle. And so you have the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar burnt offering, the basin. And then you get to the sanctuary. And inside, there's a curtain into, that separates the, the tabernacle from the holy place. The priests could go into the holy place, and they could carry on their ministry there, offering sacrifices and things like that. But once a year, and only once a year, the high priest would enter through the second curtain. See where it says curtain there? That's a second curtain, and that would separate the holy place from the most holy place, where the presence of God was. And only the high priest, after offering sacrifices for the sins of his people and offering sacrifices for his own sins, only when his sins were forgiven could he enter into God's presence, could he enter into the most holy place. Only when sins were forgiven. And that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, this uh, representation was built into a temple. And there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that the curtain, the veil, was torn in two from top to bottom that separated the holy place from the most holy place, signifying that it was now possible for human beings, sinful human beings like us, it was now possible for us to enter into God's presence on our own. Without the need of a mediator, uh, at least an earthly mediator, without the need of a priest, a preacher, or a, a pastor, you do not need an earthly mediator for you to go into God's presence. You do not need an earthly mediator to pray. You do not need an earthly mediator uh, to uh, intercede for you uh, before God. You can have a real loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. You don't need me to have a relationship with Jesus. You don't. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a priest to have a relationship with Jesus. All you need is Jesus. And when he died on the cross for your sins, he made that relationship with God possible, that you can enter into his presence. When you come here on a Sunday morning, you don't come through any other way other than by the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb covers us. Now, the word blood is used 12 times in Hebrews 9. And we're going to look in, and, and start seeing that right here as we look at verse 11. So let's look at verse 11. Uh, through verse 15. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, and that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You'll see a phrase in there that says once for all. That has two meanings in scripture. In this instance, it means that Christ died once and he never had to die again. That Christ died once for all time. The other way it's used is that Christ died once for all and that 
Christ in himself was the one who died for all the sins of humanity. This is seen in a couple places in the New Testament. One is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus died for the sins of everybody. He died for the sins of the whole world. The second one is found in John 1, 29, when John the Baptist correctly identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, uh, so we see that Jesus is the one who can take away all of our sins, that he is the one who washes us clean from our sins. And you don't need an earthly mediator in order to come to God for forgiveness. Let's keep on reading. Verses 16 through uh, 22. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood... Everything, uh, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Like I said, blood is used 12 times. So we really got to understand why blood is so important. And we read about that in verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Blood is required for forgiveness. It's part of the equation that God has set up when he wrote this math problem. He set it up that the blood, uh, blood is required for forgiveness. Now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, our sins can be forgiven and washed away. We are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Look at Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That though these were referring to Gentile Christians, but he says... You were once far away from God because you were Gentiles, but now you've been brought near to God through the blood of Christ. That this relationship that we can have with God, this loving relationship we can have with God is uh, made possible through Jesus Christ shedding his blood on the cross for our sins. That we can have a relationship with God now based on love, not on abject terror, terror, based on love, not based on rule following, but based on his grace, we can have this relationship with God. Um, let's finish up the chapter here. Looking at verse 23 through 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, again, we hear that phrase, once for all, at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those 
who are waiting for him. Jesus Christ is coming back. He suffered and died on the cross. He was raised to life on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he now sits at God's mighty right hand. That God, He sits at the right hand of the Father reigning in power and glory. And he is coming again. And when he does, we will see him face to face. And he will take us to our eternal home. Not because of any great things we have done. Not because we're so wonderful. Not because we're so special. Not because we're so amazing. Not because we help little old ladies cross the street. Not because we hold the door open for people at Strax, which you don't have to do because they have those automatic sensor things that makes you feel like you're in Star Trek. But not because of any good deeds we do. Not because we bring in a bag of groceries for the Hammond Food Pantry. It is by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood that we are saved. So how do we put our faith and trust in Christ? We believe in Jesus. Believe that he's the son of God. That he's the only way to be saved. We believe that, that uh, we, uh, we repent from our sin. We turn away from sin. We turn to God for forgiveness. We confess our faith publicly. We say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's my Lord and Savior. And then we are baptized and our sins are washed away. We call on the name of the Lord. Our sins are washed away. And then we go on to live a faithful life. In a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It is only made possible, though, through this equation that we're talking about today. It is only made possible through this equation. And what it all boils down to, to is this. Jesus died physically so that you don't have to die spiritually. Jesus died once so that you don't have to die eternally. Jesus died once so that you don't have to die eternally. That yes, Hebrews is clear. We will all die physically. And we will face judgment. We will stand before God in judgment one day. We will stand before God in judgment. And the jury, uh, there is no jury. God is the judge. And God as judge says this. There are two possible verdicts. Verdict number one is guilty. And we all deserve that verdict. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. We've all sinned in many, many ways. Even yet today, perhaps for you, for me, we have sinned against God. But the good news is that that verdict does not have to be guilty. That verdict does not have to be guilty. There is a verdict of not guilty. And it is based on a better equation. The verdict of guilty is based on this equation. Your deeds minus your sins do not equal God's forgiveness. If your forgiveness was based on your deeds, if your forgiveness was based on you, you are lost. You are dead in your sins. If you think that you can earn your way to salvation, if you think you can tithe your way to salvation, if you think you can volunteer your way to salvation, if you think that you can buy your way to salvation, you are terribly mistaken. You can't be good enough. You can't tithe enough. You could try. You can't tithe enough. You can't buy it. You can't be good enough for it. It's not based on you. That is the wrong equation. That is the wrong answer. And when you try to overcome your sins by your good deeds, you will fall woefully short. But there is a better equation. There is a much better equation that God has written. And that if you will follow this equation, if you will follow this math problem, here's the answer. Forgiveness. 
And this math problem goes like this. Jesus' sacrifice plus God's grace plus your faith equals God's forgiveness. That it is by the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us by His grace through faith in Jesus that we are forgiven. And when God forgives our sins, what do we talk about? What did we talk about last week? That Jesus is our mediator. And that when God forgives our sins, He remembers them no more. He chooses to forget them. He doesn't just flippantly go, oh, I forgot about that. Like you forget where you placed your car keys or you forget uh, to uh, get dressed in the morning. I don't know. I don't know your journey. That's your journey. No, God chooses to forget your sins. When he forgives your sins, he chooses to forget them. This is the equation. And it leads to God's forgiveness. And if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, believe in Jesus, repent from sins, confess your faith and be baptized, God will forgive your many sins. As he has forgiven mine, as he has forgiven many in this room, it's not based on the good deeds that we do. It's not based on the nice things that we do. It's not based on the, on the encouraging things that we say to other people. It's not based on a bag of groceries given to a food pantry. It is based on God's loving grace. And here's what he wants us to do. This is what he wants to do. If you remember being in school, in math class, and let's say you're taking a math test. You're not supposed to cheat, right? You're not supposed to look on other people's answers. You're not supposed to, psst, psst, psst. what's number five? Stop it, man. Leave me alone. No, here it is. With this answer, the answer to this equation, not only are you encouraged to share your answer, not only are you encouraged to share the answer, you are commanded to share the answer. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't know this equation. And they are headed for a an eternity separated from God in hell. And folks, we can't let that happen. We know the answer. People need the answer. Get out and let's share the answer. Let's share the answer. Because when we do, people will find peace in their life like they've never known. People will find hope that they so desperately need. People will find joy, inexpressible joy that comes from knowing my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. I believe that, that being a Christian is more than just this pie-in-the-sky theology of that someday when I die I get to go to heaven, but until then I have to just suffer through this life to get there. I believe that being a Christian is more than just this, this pipe dream of heaven. And it's not a pipe dream, it's a reality. But I believe that God came to give us, that Jesus came to give us life abundantly here on earth. That Jesus has, that we, through Jesus, we have all these spiritual blessings of love in our hearts, of joy in our lives, of peace in our souls, and hope. That blessed hope that so many people need. So here we go, folks. My challenge for you today think of that one person you know who needs a little more peace in their lives, they need a little more joy, they need a little more love. Think of that one person who doesn't know the answer to this equation. Share the answer with them this week.